All right. I am very excited about this. Uh, let me introduce my guest. First of all, Robin Fivish is the uh, Samuel Candler Dobbs Professor of Psychology and the Director of the Institute for the Liberal Arts at Emory University. I'd love to see your business card. That's all that on. <laughs> She's also been, uh, been widely hailed as the world's leading authority on autobiographical memory development. And uh, Robin, thank you for your time this morning. I'm really interested in the subject matter and how, how you came to it, uh, what, uh, what attracted you. And then we'll get on to the main question, which is let's start off with what is autobiographical memory? So why don't you just work it all in? Well, great. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. And thanks, thanks for asking me to this conversation. I love talking about the work that we do um, on autobiographical memory, which I've been fascinated in for 40 years, probably more. But that was probably when I became aware of the fact that there was such a thing that we divide off and study called autobiographical memory, which is really kind of the memory that we think of in everyday conversation when we say, remember when we went to the beach or remember when we saw cousin Judy? Yeah. It's a memory of our own personal experiences, memory of how we experienced our lives and think about who we are in relationship to the past, to the present and to the people in our lives. I think and it's often, it, I'm yeah, sorry. Go ahead. It, uh, it, it's often said that we are, uh, the the sum of all of our experiences and all of the people in our lives who who cross through our lives, whether it's just for a very brief period of time or those that we've lived with since the beginning of our time. Um, so it sounds to me like you're kind of focusing on the on the family aspect of that. Is that right, or do you look at the whole my, big picture? My work certainly focuses on the family aspect, but I think the research field is broader than that. Uh, and I can speak to that a little bit. My work, I'm really interested in, in childhood and adolescence, and particularly in adolescence and early adulthood, when we start to really create the shape of our lives, when we start to understand that we are a unique person with a unique perspective. That, you know, For example, if I want to know who you are, the first thing I'm going to do is say, you know, tell me where you grew up, tell me about yourself, and you're going to start telling me some stories. Because that's how we connect to each other. That's how we understand ourselves. And that's how we put ourselves into other people's shoes and understand who they are. How interesting how that process develops and it develops within the family as families, of course, share their past experiences together and tell stories. And family stories are really interesting for oh, so many reasons. I can't even enumerate them all, but because because family stories are both stories that create a shared identity. You know, remember when we, when we went to the beach last summer and it's something we all share together and we recount with laughter and love what happened during that vacation. And it creates a greater emotional bond between us, a sense that we're in this together. But we also share sad experiences, perhaps the death of a beloved pet or a grandparent, which unfortunately many children experience, many children experience much worse, of course. And in sharing those negative experiences, that also helps children understand that they didn't, although they are a unique person, they're not alone in this experience. And it gives them ways of thinking about it, coping with it, regulating their emotional reactions. So family stories about these shared events are really important for children to grow up to understand both that they are a unique individual, but they are a member of a family that brings them both joy and solace in times of distress. There's so many questions, so, so many different ways to go here. Uh, let's start with something else you just said, and that is that uh, we are all different people, even if we all grow up in the same family live right. together in the same home and, and experience, share the same experiences. And uh, we hear people talk about this all the time. They say, well, I have four kids and they're so different. You'd think, you'd think that they were raised on different planets or something. So exactly. that's, that's, I guess that's the aspect of our individual characters and personalities. How, how are they created as opposed to um, the commonality? 
Yes, of course, it's like, a, is a glass half empty, is a glass half full kind of phenomenon. It depends what you're, you know, if you're looking for similarities, you see similarities. If you're looking for differences, you see differences. So Dan McAdams um, was probably the most prominent theorist within this uh, theory of narrative identity, this idea that we form a sense of ourselves through this the story of our lives, talks about um, three levels of personality. There's a level of personality that we hear about all the time in the popular media, um, you know, personality traits, like I'm more of an introvert or I'm conscientious or I'm neurotic. Type A, there type are, B. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And we know from a lot of research, there's pretty good consensus. There are five major personality traits that a lot of it is there's biological predispositions, some genetic predispositions, so that some people really are a little bit more active than other people. Some people really are a little bit more extroverted than other people. And that plays a role in shaping who we are. And certainly within families, because it is you know, somewhat genetic and biological, that those are shared characteristics within biological families. Of course, there are lots of different kinds of families too. Right. So, you right. know. Um, but another layer of personality is kind of the human, the universal human motivations towards um, what some people have called agency and communion, the need to get ahead and the need to get along. So we're all motivated by some aspect of trying to achieve something, purpose, meaning, and some aspect of wanting to relate. We want to have intimate connections with people, friends and partners who understand us and who we understand. So those two dimensions of being in the world, those motivations are pretty universal, but they're expressed in very, very different ways by different people and different cultures in different times. Mm -hmm. And that's where we come to the thing that I'm most interested in, which is this individualizing layer of personality that is based on our own personal experiences, which even if we grow up in the same family are going to be different. And I, I don't know if you have siblings, but you must know this, right? So I'm the you, oldest of four. Oh my goodness. Yeah. yeah so you get to dominate. <laughs> you get to tell the story sometimes. <laughs> well, it's amazing how differently the stories can be. Exactly. That, you know, we, we, exactly. we talk about the same experience and everybody remembers it differently. Exactly, because you're coming to it with the lens of everything you've experienced to that point. Right. And your, as well as your, your traits, your motivations, your goals in that moment. Um, so there's often, you know, there's often these family stories take on, um, take on a certain structure and form where everybody starts to tell them the same way. But some of the most fun family stories are the ones where you never get a group. You continue to disagree about what happened. And it becomes almost um, part of the story that you see it differently. What, um, what role in individual development uh, does conflict in families, especially among siblings, uh, as they're growing up? And uh, as you said a moment ago, it's kind of, kind of jostling for position within the hierarchy of, of, uh, of the family, and then the parents get involved and all that sort of thing? I, I'm, I'm not going to be able to answer that question directly. I'm going to answer it indirectly. Okay. Um, in, the, in the sense that I don't actually, there is work on actual sibling conflict, but it's not directly related to the way we tell the stories of our lives. Okay. Um, what we see in families when they tell stories together when siblings or family members, sometimes it's a parents and a child who disagree. You know, that's not the way it happened. Um, you know, um, often this happens around, particularly uh, or between fights and conflicts um, and, and so forth. Families in which you don't necessarily have to, you don't necessarily have to agree on what happened, but you have to validate that the other person has a legitimate perspective. Mm -hmm. You know, I get that you saw it that way, but it's not the way I saw it. This is the way I saw it. But I understand why you saw it this way. When parents and children and siblings create these kind of more validated 
communally constructed stories. Children grow up with higher sense of self-esteem, better ability to regulate their own emotions, and fewer what we call internalizing problems, problems with anxiety, depression, as well as externalizing problems, problems with expressions of anger and aggression. Mm -hmm. So having your experiences, even if people don't necessarily agree with you that it happened that way, if they validate that that is your perspective, even though they see it differently, you're going to be better off developmentally than families in which the child is closed down and their perspective is invalidated. I hear you. I hear you saying uh, a lot about the, um, you know, validation and and uh, sense of uh, sense of self being developed and security and all these all these positive things. But uh, can't can families also create negative traits and characteristics that will dog us for the rest of our lives? Maybe it's uh, you know uh, families that are are uh, what's the word that is so commonly used about families dysfunctional <laughs> yes dysfunctional <laughs> dysfunctional families maybe families yeah. that are not entirely you know maybe maybe there's no father involved or there's or 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 you know there there's been a divorce or or the kids have been broken up for one reason or another all these various uh, computations are, that really create families do they have specific influences I do want to say one thing before I answer that, which is there are families that come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. And particularly in, you know, particularly in modern cultures, we don't necessarily see that children who are growing up in alternative family forms, whether it's a single parent or to male parents or to female parents or step parents, we don't see that that is in and of itself a risk factor. The risk factor is when there's conflict around those issues. Mm -hmm. So if parents get divorced, but they are able to co-parent effectively and not engage in conflicting behavior with each other and in front of the child, that usually doesn't have particularly negative consequences on the child. On the other hand, growing up with a mother and a father who are continually fighting and or there's violence in the home can be is very bad for kids. So it's not so much the structure of the family per se, but whether the family is able to engage in open and validating and trusting communication. Bad things happen. Bad things happen in everybody's life. That's unfortunately a fact of being alive. And they happen in young children's lives. Families that are able to help their young children understand, yes, bad things happen, but this is, we can talk about it. We can think about ways to deal with it. We can maybe come up with some solutions if there's a problem to be solved or some ways to help you think about things that you can do to make you feel less sad after a loss those are, the, those are the kids who are doing better on a whole host of measures. So it's really about the way in which experiences are talked about and how children learn how to frame who they are at, out of those experiences. Is this an opportunity for me to reflect and understand myself and maybe grow? Or is this in fact showing that Life is terrible, and I'm unlovable, and everything is awful. Are our children pretty much uh, um, indestructible in terms of in terms of in terms of parenting? You know, because as parents, I know uh, my wife always says to her son, "Well, you didn't come with instructions. You know, I made a lot of mistakes." And I keep assuring her, yeah, but you know what? He turned out really good. He's fine. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody is indestructible. Right. <laughs> I, you know, I think enough bad things happen. We all cave. Um, I think that, I think the other way to think about it is that in the context of 
growing up with people who love you and care about you and are keeping communication channels open, you can get past. You can get past bad things, including parenting mistakes. I mean, nobody, I mean, no parent, <laughs> no, no parent is going to get through childhood without making mistakes. Sure. And, and if you think about it and think about your own, your own experiences, I mean, you may remember a particular fight you had with a parent when you were a teenager or whatever, but really what you remember is the general tone of your family. When yeah. you said, when, when adults say, I had such a good relationship with my mother. It doesn't mean I never fought with her. Right. We never or that had, I agreed with everything she yeah. said. Yeah. Yeah. It means that overall, we had a good open. She always, we always tried to understand each other. We tried to communicate. She always, she, you know, she tried her best. Mm -hmm. So you know, it's funny. I was going to ask you about this at some point, but this is probably a good point you mentioned. Uh, you know, our relationships with our mothers, something that psychologists are fascinated by, uh, <laughs> especially by the hour. Indeed. But, <laughs> um, my, my mother passed away just three years ago, and uh, she, was just, she was just a wonderful person. She was the salt of the earth. She, she you know, lit up every room, and uh, people just adored her. She had a wonderful sense of humor. She was very intelligent. My only criticism of her was that she she lived in the past as she got older. Um, she and my father had divorced when I was in my twenties. We had younger, younger kids in the family. Um, they were, they were, they were decent with each other and with us. And, you know, they, I think they co-parented just fine. But uh, from that point forward, my mother always uh, said, uh, you know, Oh, I just wish we were all together. I wish we were, I, I want to be with all my kids, everybody back the way it used to be, that kind of thing. As I got older, I said to her a couple of times, I said, mom, it's probably, you know, things were not exactly the way you're remembering them all the time. And the other part was that just very, very concerning to me is that she, and I think there are other people too, who seem to, um, who, who just revel in nostalgia. And I always say, well, nostalgia is a nice place to visit. Love going back to the old pictures or, you know, going to a high school reunion, but it's no way to live. You have anything to say to that or add to that? Or oh, am I just so rambling down the things. wrong word? No, that's so interesting. But you bring up something that, that I, so many things, but one in particular that I, I want to highlight, which is what's developmentally appropriate. So, you know, I've been talking about childhood and adolescence. I want to put this in context. You know, my work is all with families with young children and or adolescents, young mm -hmm. adults. So children that are still more or less living in the home, they may be away at college, but they're still living uh, at home. Um, this is a time when, of course, we're creating a life for ourselves. You know, five-year-olds don't really have a sense of past, present, future they kind of have a limited sense of that. And they're starting to build a sense of this is, this is, you know, these are my experiences and this is what I can expect for the future. But it's not really until adolescence that you start to get a sense of that temporal continuity of I have been this kind of a person, I've grown up in this kind of a place and it's given me this kind of platform. This is how I've become the person I am. And also the projection into the future. It's really in adolescence and young adulthood that we see that exploration of who am I? And not just based on what my parents have told me, that is, what is my political you know, connection? What is my religious context? What, what are my educational goals? Who do I want to be with as an intimate partner? I have to make those decisions for myself now. I'm moving into a whole new phase. So it's very future oriented. It's very anxiety producing. This is why adolescents and young adults are, and of course also the brain function is such that they are, um, they're still very much risk takers and very much um, not able to make uh, the kinds of clear decisions that older adults are able to make in terms of uh, being able to predict 
uh, appropriately what the consequences of some kinds of behavior might be. Let me just leave it at that. Um, but that's a very exciting and anxiety in both a negative and positive way. And so there is definitely future orientation. And then we get older, perhaps we make a life with somebody, perhaps we have children, perhaps we create a career path and our goals and our motivations change. We look back and forward, but there also comes a time in our lives when I'm there now, you know, most of it's behind us, right? There's less ahead of us. And it is a time for reflection. So it's not inappropriate for older people. I'm not quite that old yet, but to get to a point where we're doing what's called life reflection and reminiscence on life to kind of create a sense of a life, hopefully a life well lived so that we can feel comfortable about ourselves and die with dignity and integrity. So that's a wonderful revelation. It's a good, it's a good yeah. way of putting it. Yeah, that, that really explains a lot to me. But I also want to say something about nostalgia. Okay. Because this also relates to the pandemic. Yeah. You know, as many of us experienced these, these lockdowns, 2020, 2021, you know, many of us sheltered, many of us were socially isolated. There was a renewal of nostalgia. There was this things used to be so things really were better. We weren't, we, weren't, we weren't stuck in our houses and in Zoom rooms. Um, but it really was an uptick and perhaps at a bad time for certain ages of people. Like adolescents and young adults really suffered mm. more than older people and even younger people. In a sense because, of their personal development. Right. Because their time is, this is when you get out in the world. Right. This is your opportunity to Go out in the world and start discovering who you are. That's their job. That's their job. And it was taken away from them. Yeah. Interesting. I, I was going to ask you, too, um, and the pandemic made me think about this. We're, we're hearing a lot about how, <clears throat> how society and, and our culture in this country has, has changed so much over the years. And I'm sure this is something that has been discussed at every, every generation. You know, well, when I was your age, we didn't have this. We got to do that. I had to work, you know, and all of that kind of thing. But now we're finding families are spending less time together. Everybody's got so much going on. Uh, kids are maybe overscheduled a little bit. Uh, maybe parents are, are too busy to spend good quality time with the kids, or, or maybe it's the opposite, and they're being helicopter parents. Are you finding all of these differences? And let's let's throw... Uh, social media into the mix, the change in the culture, is it, is it too soon to say whether or not this is having any direct effect on people's development within the no, culture? It, yeah, I don't think it's too soon. I think there's a lot of research that indicates that, and I want to be clear, it's like everything else, everything else that we study, it depends, right? It right. depends on the context and the person. There are actually positive aspects to social media. There are definitely some positive aspects sure. to social media. So I, I don't want to say any kind of blanket statements that this is bad, but we are seeing some very negative effects, particularly again, my the age period that I'm particularly interested in, adolescents, young adults, who are spending a lot of time on social media and it can have some very negative effects on self-esteem, on depression, because they're constantly on display, constant performance, constant comparison. This has always been true. The peer group has always been so critically important at this developmental time period. And evaluations of your peers has been so important, but you've been able to get away from it. Right. You've been able to shut it off. That's, that's part of our development, right? Is to learn yeah. to deal with uh, with conflicting views of us and how I might view myself, how I deal with my friends or other people at school and so forth. But you're right. And that's the bottom line is now it's 24-7. Yeah. And I think we are seeing some of those negative effects. Um, how, you know, what, what are the, will that outweigh the positive effects? 
how will that influence? We are seeing increased levels of depression um, in this age group. Uh, we were starting to see that even pre-pandemic. Um, the pandemic devastated this age group. I mean, rates of depression and anxiety skyrocketed. And I think it's gonna take time to recover and figure all of this out. But I also think that, so going back to you know what, what is near and dear to my heart, I think that the stories we tell and the stories we hear can help in, in this. That is, I think that as we share our experiences and understand that we're not alone and we gain perspective, telling our story to others, listening to other stories helps us gain perspective and evaluation on what we experience and what the world is like. One of the things that we do um, at Emory in my classrooms and actually also in multiple events outside the classroom is we engage in story circles where students, uh, it's, it's a semi-structured way of sharing stories around particular themes or topics that we may be covering in class. And students invariably say, this was so helpful for me to be able to express what I was feeling in an environment that I was accepted and to hear that other people felt similar ways. This really helped me. So I think the way we communicate with other people around talking about our experiences is helpful. The other thing we know is that journaling is very helpful. Just writing about your experiences on a daily basis can really be helpful in terms of alleviating feelings of stress and anxiety. I think we, we uh, tend to view uh, introverted children, those who are quieter, those who like to play by themselves more often than getting involved, certainly than in a group, maybe they're fine one-on-one, -on -one, mm. uh, but maybe they're not, maybe they're not big storytellers. Maybe they don't like to, you know, release their feelings. And mm -hmm. I think the, the general view that we have is, well, there's, there's a child that's going to uh, grow into a challenged adult in, in some ways, maybe, you know, in a, I mean, name any aspect of, of life. Mm -hmm. Is, is that a, is that a fact or is that uh, just do people just change as they get older? Well, of course, people change as they get older, but also what you're saying is very culturally specific. So um, um, in the U.S., of course, we are a very extroverted culture. We expect people to, there's a very strong expectation that you have a story to tell, that it's individual, it's unique, and you're going to be able to tell it. I mean, think about college essays, job interviews, dating sites, uh, you know, you need to be able to say who you are and tell your story. Um, and it needs to be intriguing and interesting and unique. You know, if you went to China, you would stand out like a sore thumb and be pointed to as some as an upstart. And what is wrong with you? And you get crazy. back in your get back in your lane yeah. because the story should be about the group and the community and serenity and harmony and communion. That sounds a lot better. We have to adapt. Well, maybe, I mean, I, I, again, I think the answer is always, there are pros and cons to all ways of being in the world. I think, uh, I think very likely a healthy balance of being kind of more outgoing and autonomous along with being reflective and thoughtful and community oriented probably is the best way forward. Different cultures focus on different aspects and different contexts within the culture focus on different aspects of what's gonna be valued. So the most adaptable human being probably is the most flexible human being. The one who's able to read the room read the people mm -hmm. and behave appropriately. What is the, uh, what is the best roadmap for, for parents as they become new parents and then, okay, here mm -hmm. comes the second kid and so forth. You know, do, do we need to, uh, to encourage people to set boundaries, uh, make rules and that kind of thing, or are, 
our will our kids develop better if we kind of leave them to their own devices and just make sure they don't get hurt? So there's a lot of research on parenting. This is not my own research, but there's a lot of research out there. And I, I teach about this kind of research. And then I'll talk about my own research on stories. Okay. We know a lot about good parenting. Good parenting is what is called authoritative parenting. And that's in contrast to authoritarian parenting mm-hmm. or kind of laissez-faire parenting. So authoritarian parenting is, these are the rules. They're my rules because I say so. No ifs, ends, or buts. Strict, strict rules, punishments. Because I said so. Because I said so, answer. no reasons, explanation. no explanations. I mean, I'm giving a caricature, obviously. Right, sure. You know, um, laissez-faire parenting is, oh, little flower, just we'll water <laughs> you and you will grow. Um, author- authoritative parenting is I'm the parent, you're the child. These are the rules. This is why we have these rules. Here are the reasons There can be exceptions, let's talk about it. But I'm here to keep you safe, to keep you loved, to make sure that, you know, your life is a good life. But again, open communication about why we're doing things the way we're doing them. That's age appropriate. I mean, you don't sit down with a three-year-old and explain, you know, things that are gravity. Things that are over their heads because yeah, never entered their heads. Yeah. And frankly, sometimes you have to say, because I said so, <laughs> you know, particularly with three-year-olds, right? Sometimes you just have to say, because I said so. That makes sense, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, to the again, it's like to the extent possible, you know, that, that you provide kids need structure. They're going to push against it, but they need that structure. The structure makes them feel safe and loved. But they also need to push against it to create a sense of their own autonomy in the world. So it, it is a balancing act and different different balance for different ages and frankly for different kids. There are some 10-year-olds who are ready to do some things that other 10-year-olds might not yet be ready to do. Sure. But then I want to talk about something else next story. Okay. Yeah. What parents can do. First off, talk, 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 talk. The more language, the more talk with kids, the more open the communication, the better outcome on all kinds of things. But within that talk, about 40% of everyday conversation is stories. People find that surprising. But then start thinking about what you talk about at the end of the day. What happened in school? Did you have lunch with did you have lunch with Janet? I thought you had a fight with her last week. <laughs> you know, what happened with your math teacher? Those are stories. They're little stories, they're the small stories of our lives. Let me tell you what happened at work today. So funny. You know, so we are telling small stories all the time. These bigger stories come up all the time in conversation. You don't have to explicitly make room for stories. If you talk with your kids, stories will come up. And what we do know is that families that engage in more storytelling have kids who show better outcome. These stories really matter because the stories provide models for how the world works, how relationships work, for who we are as a family, for who I am as a person. And you learn from your own stories as you're telling. Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially as you retell them and somebody kind of asks you questions and it makes you think and reevaluate. And you're like, oh, I didn't think about it that way. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you what, when my son was little, I'd pick him up from school and always say, you know, how was your day? Fine. Fine. What did you do? <laughs> nothing. Oh, you know, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> what did you learn? No, nothing. <laughs> it's like, okay, good. What do you want to go to? What do we want to do now? So we had our conversation here. That <laughs> absolutely does happen. There's no doubt about it. And it's frustrating. But, but you know, as, as you sit, it may not be as I get in the car. But maybe a little later that evening, something else comes up mm-hmm. and a little bit more information comes out or maybe over the weekend. I mean, if you're ready for it, you hear it. The other thing that I want to also stress is that it's important to tell your child stories about yourself when you were growing up. Yeah. Um, parents and I, we hear this all the time in families. And I know it's true. 
adolescents just roll their eyes when their parents start saying, well, when I was your age, it's like, oh, mom, not that again. <laughs> but they're listening and they're hearing it. We've now done studies with hundreds and hundreds of adolescents. They not only know the stories they've been told, these stories are important to them. They talk about what these stories mean to them. And the adolescents who don't have that many stories or don't know a lot of details, express, they say things like, I wish I knew more about what my mom was like when she was a kid. Yeah. These stories really help them understand their, their parents as people, but also how they became the person they are through their parents' stories. Sure. Maybe we just need to uh, not start out by saying when I was your age. <laughs> or, or, or well, when I went to school, you know, pointing yeah. out the big difference and, and with a strong implication that yeah. the things, things were yeah. much better in my day than they are in yours, you know. Or harder, right? It was harder right. for me. Right. It was much harder for me. Right. <laughs> it's interesting to me that uh, you're talking, talking about storytelling and families spending time together talking and talking about their personal experiences. And I, I was uh, doing a little bit of research on you to figure out where we should go with this conversation, um, it occurred to me that that's the way uh, human beings have developed through all uh, all of history. Absolutely. Ancient traditions were, uh, you know, tribes sitting around campfires and 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 the the father telling telling tales and that sort of thing, right? So it's Absolutely. how we relate. Absolutely. Um, archaeologists and some evolutionary biologists and anthropologists have argued that, um, you know, we started using language about 10,000 years ago, and that those very first uses of language they were clearly stories. We know that from the cave paintings and some other evidence. And then, of course, all the sagas that came down to us orally, how the world started, how the gods were, you know, were created and how the gods created the world. Humans are hungry to make meaning of the world. They're hungry to understand and predict. Um, we need to live in a world that makes sense to us and that has some meaning and purpose. And I think perhaps still, but certainly in our ancient history, that came through stories of the origin of the world that were often based in various kinds of um, religious and or pagan stories. Mm -hmm. Human development all the way through. Yeah. Well, um, I'm interested in how you got interested in this, in this particular branch of uh, your psychological studies and research. Give us a little bit of your background when it came to, <laughs> uh, when you became, uh, you decided to go to college and what you wanted to study and why. Well, when I decided to go to college, I always wanted to go to college. It was always, I loved books. I loved reading from when I was very, very, very little. And I loved school. So I knew I wanted to go to college. But I had no idea what I wanted to study. Um, and actually, I mean, I thought I would study literature and philosophy, history. Um, I loved philosophy. And I really read a lot of philosophy. And I became very intrigued by the question of how do we know what we know? Yeah. And philosophers have been talking about this forever. And I, I ended up getting very frustrated because it seemed to me that how would we ever know this? I mean, you know, that people can talk about it and talk about it and talk about it. And um, I actually decided to become, for various reasons that are very complicated, uh, I decided to become a clinical psychologist. I wanted to do psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. So I started graduate school in clinical psychology and realized that there was an empirical way to study what people, how people know what they know. That is that we could study memory empirically. And by studying memory empirically, we could actually provide data on what people know and how they know it. How do you study, how how do you study memories empirically? That's an interesting um, phrase. You, okay, so, uh, you know, in a scientific study, you create a hypothesis and you collect data and you assess that hypothesis. So I was, I was into, how do, how do children start to put their experiences together? How do they start to narrate the stories of their lives? 
So we just started working with families and going in and tape recording family interactions and documenting the ways in which parents structured conversations about past events with young kids. And we developed ways of, we developed ways of quantifying both the amount of talk about the past, but also just describing and analyzing the quality of that talk in relation to how children then came to talk about their own past experiences and in relation to their sense of self-concept and how that developed into their own narrative identity and ability to regulate their emotions and understand who they were in the world, their levels. So it's, it's really, it's an iterative process of of, of doc, documenting and describing in deep detail what we do in our everyday conversations. And then from that, developing hypotheses about how that might lead to particular kinds of childhood outcomes and testing them. It sounds like your, uh, your desire for some sort of empirical uh, evidence in, into philosophical considerations uh, led you to yes. to what it is you're doing now with regards to storytelling and how that is all uh, you know combined into the people we become. So what I, I think I read that you've you've published like 250 uh, books and papers and uh, you know not I don't I don't mean to imply 250 books. <laughs> you certainly would have no time to be talking with me right now. But I mean, various publications. Yes, I do publish so quite a lot. Yeah. Yes. So, so um, what is it you do precisely? Well, I, it's kind of what I just said. I mean, our, our work is, first of all, let me just say I work with teams, both colleagues and graduate students. So we'll be a team of researchers. Um, and again, what we do is uh, a combination of both deep descriptive work and then hypothesis testing. So the deep descriptive work is kind of asking families, can we come in and record you conversing around the dinner table? Can we come in and record you talking, you know, we're gonna ask you to talk about challenging times that you've had together as a family. We're just gonna record it. Do you do you and, get do you get a, a good pure result from you know turning on a a tape recorder or, what, or turning always, on a camera or something on a family? It's, it's always a question, Dave. You know, this is always a problem. One, I mean, who who agrees to participate in research? So mm. um, we usually get families who are interested and more reflective about who they are as a family. Yeah. Um, in some of our research, sometimes when I have been able, some of my colleagues are, I'm no longer a clinical, I'm, I did not pursue clinical psychology. I pursued developmental research. So I do not have, I do not do psychotherapy. So I don't work with families in distress, mm -hmm. but some of my colleagues do. And some of our studies have been with families who are in distress. Most of our, most of my research is with families just from the community who are interested in helping us. So yes, we have to get informed consent and do they act differently with the tape recorder on than not? Right. Probably, probably a little bit, but you know, we spend a lot of time with these families. Yeah. And at some point, I'm telling you some of the things on these tapes, I don't think they're monitoring anymore. I think they've <laughs> forgotten that we're there. But even if they haven't, there's a sense in which we've now worked with so many families and not just us, but other researchers in other countries. And the same findings come up again and again and again. So unless you want to make the argument that across all of these hundreds of studies over 30 years, people always behave a certain way in front of a tape recorder and differently when it's not on. I think that's, I think that's not the most parsimonious explanation. Well, I, yeah. there actually, there actually, there actually is uh, of uh, studies that have been done into conversations, uh, mm -hmm. long, uh, long form interviews, conversations like we're having now and they found that the longer you talk with somebody 
the less likely they are to maintain a facade. <laughs> you know, people, exactly. People, exactly. people finally go back to being who they were with a certain level of comfort. I think that's true. And, and, and in our early studies, we would spend four or five days, at the, not all day 24 seven, right. but four or five days over a, a week, a week or 10 day period, tape recording at various times of day with these families. So I, I also think that, you know, that, that out of those deep descriptions, we developed specific hypotheses that we then tested quite specifically. So for example, what we found is that mothers who were, going back to what we talked about earlier, um, talked about the past more frequently, talked in more detail, validated their child's responses, kind of drew them out, helped them structure the narrative more coherently. We found that had very positive effects over time, both immediately and over time, hmm. on children's language development, on their self-esteem, on their emotion regulation. So we tested that quite specifically. And then other people, I've not done this work myself, but other people then, this is to me the most convincing work, then said, well, if that's the case, then if we coach mothers to engage in this kind of behavior, that should produce positive outcome. And it does. Does it? Yes. Yeah. So to me, that's very convincing. How about, are there there any things that you've uh, learned in your research that uh, that could lead to um, uh, recommendations for schools in in dealing with childhood and uh, helping helping teachers, you know, find the right level in terms of their role where childhood development is concerned. We're, we're so often we're saying to teachers, you know, just teach them arithmetic and history and leave the parenting to home. Well, that's not the reality of the situation situation is that the kids are there in the school for whatever length of time they're there. And in many, many cases, they spend more time with the teacher than they do with their own parents. You know, can, can some of what you're learning be applied to, uh, to education? Yes, it can. And there's a couple of researchers, Jennifer Kaufman uh, at uh, University of North Carolina, Greensboro, and Penny Van Bergen in, uh, in Australia um, at University of I think she's at the University of New South Wales now, um, are both doing work with teachers in the school systems around this notion of using um, elaborative storytelling techniques in the classroom to actually help kids learn not just literacy, we know that that's related to literacy, but also science and math concepts. So stories are, I mean, stories are the way humans understand the world. Mm -hmm. Stories are are what children resonate to. The more we can use and draw children's interest in and ability to use stories to understand the world, I think the better off we're going to be in terms of outcome. I was talking about this with, uh, with my partner on the radio here in Dallas uh, just a couple of days ago. Uh, we had, we'd run across a news story that was about uh, how, uh, how few people in this country um, in terms of uh, percentage, really understand what the Holocaust was about. So we were mm-hmm. going down that road, and I said, you know what? When I was in high school, I had a teacher that uh, he was a wonderful, wonderful history teacher because he didn't just come and lay out dates and, and, and names for us. He told the stories of those times, and you know, he was riveting to watch. Sometimes mm-hmm. he would come in in costume. Depending, oh my on, oh, depending on what his lesson was. And Those I remember that because he, he actually, of course, this, I don't think you could get away with this now, but he actually came to school one day dressed as a Nazi soldier. No, you couldn't get away with that today. And, uh, was, but it made an impression that I haven't forgotten over the course of, you know, nearly 60 years. Right. So uh, I, I just thought that was, uh, that was interesting that storytelling uh, can be applied to probably any, uh, any academic uh, subject, huh? I think it was Mark Twain who said, you know, statistics, you know, 10,000 people is a statistic. One person is a tragedy. Wow. I'm a big fan of Mark Twain. I haven't heard that. One. Uh, something like that. I know I'm getting it not quite right. Uh, I, most, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I just need to warn you. I need to be off this call in five minutes. Okay. I was just about to. 
head us down toward the exit. Okay. Okay. I wanted to mention that uh, I guess this is your most recent book, Family Narratives and the Construction of an Autobiographical mm-hmm. Self. Yes. So give us a brief uh, a brief synopsis of of what that is, why you came to write it. That book really represents uh, the culmination of 30 plus years of research that I started as a young faculty member at Emory and that many, many other people have been involved in as well as spreading out to many other uh, research labs, both in this country and internationally, that talks about the role of family stories and family storytelling in the creation of both individual identity, family identity, and all of the positive outcomes that storytelling has for children's sense of who they are in the world. Again, their self-esteem, their ability to regulate emotions, their pro-social behavior, empathy, understanding, theory of mind, understanding that we all have a unique perspective in the world. So storytelling really is foundational. It's a a really critical building block in how we understand who we are as individuals and how we fit into the mosaic of humankind. Yeah, we did talk about how that seems to be human nature going back uh, throughout the history of humanity. Uh, is Is there a time and a need now to strengthen that message and get people to understand this is not simply the way you interact with your family. It's crucial part of the development of all of your family members and, and your own social interaction. I, I think, as I, I'll go back to what I said earlier, 40% of conversation is storytelling. Hmm. I think it is the water we swim in. And we are doing it all the time without even realizing it. I think being more reflective about it certainly is a good thing. And I think that we should actively listen to other people's stories. And I think every time, every period, every moment in history, stories are going to be critical. Perfect. Dr. Fivers, thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. Dave, thank you so much. And I'm sorry about the mix up again. And I'm glad we were able to do this. Oh, it's not a problem. <laughs>